It's good to be here this morning. I'm excited to preach out of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to get there in just a few moments. First of all, I'd like to try to paint a picture. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to paint a picture here for you. Um, art, right? There are art lovers and art loathers or art haters. Um, you know, art embracers and art endurers. My dear wife, Lori, is one of the art lover embracer type of people. All right? And me? Well, you know, there's art. <laughs> a few years ago, we had opportunity to spend time in the Smithsonian Art Museum there in D.C., and Lori loved, loved, loved being there. I mean, there was Picasso, right? Da Vinci, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Monet, Manet, and mahogany. No, wait, no, no, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Mahogany. There, there's, no, there's no classical artist named mahogany. Okay. But, you know, this was Lori. This was Lori in that art museum. Okay. That's Lori. And, I mean, I went far too quickly, all right? Okay, this is me. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, I mean, just move on. It, it can't, it, you can't go fast enough through the stuff. Okay, so, um, all right, all right. So, so Lori, the time in that museum could not have extended long enough, right? And for me, it can, you know, once you've seen one painting, you've seen them all. Okay, so now all you art enthusiasts, don't take out your smartphones, don't send me the hate emails, okay? I'll repent later. All right, but the point I'm trying to make here, there is a point, is that Lori is an art gazer. She gazes at the art. She stares at it. Me? I'm a sophisticated art glancer. Okay? Trust me, as an older friend of mine would say, I'm pretty sure there's a spiritual lesson to be learned here. There is a biblical thought process in all of this. You know, one author has stated, perhaps the worst effect of the fall is that we lost our ability to focus both on God and on the world. We tinker with everything and behold nothing. We skim beauty. So as we begin this morning, please meet me in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21 verse 6. God's word states, Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Well, So what happened here? You know, why did God send fiery serpents into the midst of the Israelites? Well, let's look back to get some context. Look at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go from the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, keep in mind that God had provided for the Israelites, right? What was, what was the food called? Manna. That's right. It was called manna, 
All right, and as some of you may remember, the, the late Keith Green so eloquently sang about this. Right? He, he sang, in the morning it's manna hotcakes, we snack on manna all day, and we sure had a winner last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. Right? And then he continued at the end of the song, manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patty, banana bread. Okay, so God had provided for the Israelites. He had provided. Even though God provided, they, like many of us, did not like God's provision. Verse 6 tells us that God sent fiery serpents, you know, most likely very poisonous snakes. And then verse 7, look at that. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. All right, so here's the Sports Center recap. All right, God provided. The Israelites did not like the provision. They rebelled against God by choosing to not recognize God's goodness being demonstrated to them through his provision. So God rendered judgment. Another way of addressing this rebellion would be saying that the Israelites despised God's provision. Then the Israelites repented of their sin and God gave Moses direction. And so Moses made the bronze serpent sit on a pole and then if a certain serpent bit anyone, they would look at the serpent on the pole and live. In verse 8, the word translated looks which is ra'ah, carries a strong direction. It's to inspect, to perceive, to consider. I mean, in addition, the Hebrew word that is translated looked or beheld in verse 9 carries a strong sense of gazing, regarding, paying attention to. Right? So now, thinking back to our introduction here, this is Lori in the art museum. Oh my goodness, she moves in closer, wants to see the brush strokes on the canvas. Then she steps away because she wants to see the big picture of all that's going on. Right? It seems this was not just a glimpse or a glance, right? That'd be like me in the art museum, right? Instead, it's gazing, ingesting, drinking in. So the Israelites were to fix their eyes on the demonstration of God's provision, So there is a connection to this Hebrews passage that we're going to consider this morning. Join me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's a portion of scripture that many of us probably already know from memory. I think it's good for us to have to go back and and study through some of these things. Hebrews chapter 12 We'll read verses 1 through 3, and we, were, we had it projected on the screens earlier, and I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. Okay, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. All right, so, so just the opening of this passage here, we see this phrase, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, who or what is this great cloud of witnesses? We need to look back a couple verses to see. Actually, we need to move back an entire chapter here. Let, let's turn back to chapter 11. It's all of Hebrews chapter 11, and this is known as the what chapter? The faith chapter, right? It's, it's known as the faith chapter. The chapter opens with these well-known known words, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then Hebrews presents what many know as the hall of faith. There's Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the people, yeah, the people of Israel. You know, I, I'm looking at my notes, I'm thinking, did I read that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 29, look at verse 29. It says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Oh, okay, I'll keep going. Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Right? These were the folks who, through faith, conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Bam! That is the kind of faith that we should desire. Right? That's the kind of faith that all of us should long for. I want to have faith like that. And you should too. You know, I'd like to say that they had their best life then and that we have our best life right now. I'd like to say that. I'd like to pray and have us all go home right now with this happy thought on our brains. I'd like to stop right there. But we can't stop right there because the text keeps going. In verse 35, some were tortured. Uh, All right, that doesn't sound too good. Verse 36, others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. You You know I'm liking this less and less. Verse 37, some were stoned, some were sawn in two, some were killed with the sword. I'm really not liking this. Some went about in sheep and goat skins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And then verse 39 states, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So the faith of those in the Old Testament looked forward to the promised salvation through the coming of the Messiah. In addition, the faith of those who have come after Christ looks back to the fulfillment of the promise. Genuine saving faith is based on the Lord's atoning work on the cross. So now with all of that in mind, we can now look at the opening of chapter 12. 
Right? Therefore, in light of everything that had been presented from the middle of chapter 10, which we didn't even look at, but says holding fast to the confession of our hope in verse 23, and then living by faith, it says in verse 38. Because of all of that, and with all that was laid out in chapter 11 in mind, we were ready to consider the opening words of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses— So this references all the saints who have gone before, particularly those who are mentioned in the preceding chapter. And in fact, one commentator writes this, quote, the word witnesses does not mean spectators. It's not spectators. Our English word martyr comes directly from the Greek word translated witness, end quote. So instead of these people witnessing what we are doing, right, instead of them witnessing us, these witnesses serve as witnesses. So they're examples, they're testimonies to us of how God carries his people through all avenues, through all situations, through all scenarios of life. In essence, we should be encouraged by their testimonies, by their lives, indeed, by their faith. But keep in mind, again, just as the song that was played just a little bit ago, right? This isn't about the people. This is about our great God, right? God is the point of focus here. God is always carrying his people through both what we consider to be good things and what we consider to be bad things. Okay, let's keep reading verse 1. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So like the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews uses athletic imagery. Right here we see this athletic imagery. Athletes training for a specific sport or a specific event, they would often use additional weight to help in their training. All right, let's just come into modern times here. Um, This is the middle of October. Uh, Reggie Jackson was Mr. October, right? Baseball. Okay, baseball. So when players are in the warm-up circle, what do they have on their bat? It's not just the bat. They've got something else hanging on that thing. It's a weight. It's a weight hanging on that bat when they're warming up in that warm-up circle. But then they don't step up to the plate with that same weight on the bat. Well, that would be ludicrous, right? No, they take the weight off. They remove the weight. So that's a modern visual example for us. In addition, the author of Hebrews exhorts the reader to lay aside sin which clings so closely. And that should be something each and every one of us can identify with. Right? You know, every follower of Jesus Christ struggles with sin because we live in sin-filled bodies. Because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, though, we've been freed from the power of sin. And in addition, we have been freed from the penalty of sin because Jesus satisfied the holy righteousness, the holy wrath, the holiness of our great God. And these are some of the very concepts I was teaching to our brothers in Ethiopia over this past week. One day, praise the Lord, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. And we long for that day. But until that day, guess what? It's still going to be a struggle, right? Life will be a struggle. As the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. So keep your hands here in Hebrews 12 and turn back to Romans 7. Got the Gospels, Acts, Romans chapter 7. 
In verse 19, Paul states this. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that resonate with you? Can you understand that? Can you identify with it? You see, every follower of Jesus struggles with sin. In fact, every follower of Jesus should struggle against sin. So the author of Hebrews exhorts the reader to battle the sin, to lay aside the sin. All right, let's turn back to Hebrews 12. We're continuing to go. We're continuing to run with verse 1 there. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now again, athletic imagery is used. Run, endurance, run the race with endurance. The Greek word that is translated as endurance, hupomone, places a great or strong emphasis on steadfastness or constancy. It really gives credence to the thought that this is not a sprint. It's not a sprint. You, you know, what, what are sprinters known for? Being fast, right? I mean, they're known for sprinting, okay? So, so they're, they're known for speed. But marathon runners, marathon runners are known for their constancy. They're known for their endurance. They're known for steadfastness. So giving even more weight to this thought process is the Greek word that is translated as race, right? Agone. It is from this Greek word that we der- derive our English word agony. So the text clearly presents that the faith-filled, faith-directed, faith-lived life will be demanding, it will be grueling, it will be taxing. It will be difficult. So now if you're like me at this point of the text, you could be pretty discouraged. You could think, well, this seems hopeless. But, but now, but because of the cross, there is hope. There is always hope because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is gazing, not glancing. Right? It used to be said that if you could not tell a story in three minutes or less, as in a news story, right, network news, your audience would tune you out. They would mentally wander. They would flip the channel. All right, but consider this. Recent studies concerning the current generation, which is the always-on generation, have shown that one-third of consumers will start abandoning slow-loading websites between one and five seconds We're not talking three minutes. We're not talking two minutes. We're not talking one minute. We are talking one to five seconds. So if you can't grab my attention somewhere between one and five seconds of navigating to your website, I have lost interest. Man, we are a society of glancers. Right? We have so much access to so many things. We really know very little. All right, so, so in contrast, let's look back at verse 2 Hebrew, here of Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, gazing on Jesus, not glancing. It's almost like we're being rude, right? Remember when you were young and your mom used to see you um, uh, looking intently at something? She would say, don't stare, 
Well, here, it's almost, that, that might be good mom advice, but that's not good God advice. God has given us some direct, direct thought process here. Gazing, it's almost like we're staring. So it's almost permission to be rude because we're staring at the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's turning, turning the eyes away from other things and fixing them on the Lord. This is a constant looking to you. It's a constant gazing upon Jesus. And so, so what is that? I mean, we, we, we've been mentioning it here this morning, but what is gazing on Jesus? Well, well, it's a steadfast contemplation. It's a consideration of who he was and who he is. And what he has said he is, is seen through Scripture. All he has done, as seen in Scripture and in my life and in your life. And all that he will do, as we see presented in Scripture. So then the question arises, why should we gaze on the Lord? Well, we gaze on him because he alone is the source of salvation. Right? There is no other name that saves. There is no other way except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? John 14, 6, state, Jesus stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no one else. Jesus Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith. In addition, we keep in mind that gazing on the Lord cannot take place when we are gazing on ourselves. And just as sinful humans, that can be a legitimate tendency. doesn't mean it's right. It can just mean it's a tendency. It's like, all right. But to gaze on the Lord, we need to stop gazing at ourselves. We need to stop looking at our own navels. Okay, we need to stop focusing on ourselves. So let's get our eyes off ourselves and place them on the Lord. Now, this can be tricky, right? We see the reminders to the Israelites to not forget. Deuteronomy 9.7 instructs the Israelites to remember and do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath. And throughout Scripture, we see the exhortation to remember well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes a list of sins, and then he uses this verbiage. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And then there's this great word, but. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is a point to remembering things. Now, on the other hand, many of us have clung to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, right, where Paul writes this, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So which is it? Well, can I say both concepts are presented in Scripture? Okay, it's just like I was interacting with the brothers this past week. We've got God's sovereignty. We've got man's responsibility. Somehow the two walk hand in hand. Well, here we're both to forget and to remember. Right? There's this healthy tension in the middle. We're to remember well from where the Lord has brought us. And we rejoice in his faithfulness in our lives. We remember that God has saved us from running our hell-bound race. That he has poured his grace and mercy on us. But as well, we should seek to forget our perceived self-righteousness and not dwell or not fix our eyes on the past. So we both remember and forget. 
And in all of that, our gaze should be fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so let's, keep, let's keep reading here in Hebrews 12, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith in verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as our ultimate example, the Lord Jesus Christ endured shame, agony, physical death. And not just any death, but the terrible death of the cross. So that the joy of completing the Father's will would be his. So for the follower of Jesus, there's comfort to be found in these words. There's encouragement here, right? No matter our suffering, no matter our trial, no matter our pain, do you realize this? We have a Lord who understands. He knows. He understands this. Matt Papa writes these words. He said, quote, When we look at our suffering through the cross, right through the filter of the cross, we see that the God who ordered the greatest tragedy ever for the greatest good will order our every tragedy for our good. Look to him. And as we continue to look at Jesus, we realize it is only through his death that we have life. And as a result of enduring to the end, the Lord Jesus Christ has been given the place of honor at the right hand of God the Father. As well, Philippians 2 tells us that the, that the Lord Jesus, Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. So now we're ready to look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right, so everything has come full circle. The saints that we saw presented in chapter 11, they're not the focal point here. They're not the focus. Okay, we, even we, even us, at the, you know, at the beginning of the exhortation here at chapter 12, right, we're not the focus. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ is the focal point. We've seen the importance of fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 serves as a reminder that others have gone before us. They serve as witnesses, as testimonials, right? And so that's, that's our hope of looking to, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That's what we're supposed to do. The opening of chapter 12 is the reminder to fix our eyes, to press on, to run, and to endure. But don't miss this. Jesus is the focus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the focus. And left to ourselves, we are likely, well, no, yeah, I mean, we are going to grow weary. We are going to grow faint-hearted. You know, the scenarios of life can be overwhelming, I'm sure many of you can testify to that. I know I can, I know my heart gets overwhelmed. Hostility, aggression, attacks from those around us, they can all seem unfair. You know, there, there have been times in my life when I've been incredibly burdened by these things. By myself, I am prone to weariness. I am prone to faint-heartedness. 
However, even as a friend stated in response to a recent attack, why are you surprised? He said, you are nowhere near as righteous or good as Jesus. And Jesus was falsely accused and aggressively attacked. Why should you be any different? Indeed. Why should we think that we should be treated any different than our Lord and Master? You know, I'd like to come up with an answer that sounds spiritual. I'd like to pretend, right? You know, I, but I'm going to guess that it is, that's how it is with all of us because of our sinfulness. However, if I am honest, and if you would be honest, if we would be brutally honest, ultimately I believe I do not deserve the attacks because deep, deep down in my sinfulness, I believe I deserve better. Right? I mean, even as, I know I wrote these words, you know, regarding that, but even as I say them, it just sounds ugly. It sounds petty. But that's the truth for me, and it's the truth for each one of us. When we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, we lose our focus. Okay, we lose our focus, and then we start believing things that are not true. This is why it's so important that we speak the truth to ourselves. Right? The psalmist, why are you cast down on my soul in Psalm 42? Put your hope or put your trust in God. Right? We need to keep our, our gaze, our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, present the words of Jesus, where he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In fact, the world should hate us. Not because we are being offensive, but because of the, the offense caused by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would do well to remember that no servant is greater than his master. Right in the midst of a life that is filled with injustice and wrongs that we commit and are committed against us, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, the Savior who suffered vast amounts of true injustice to bring glory to God. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ so that we will not grow weary, so that we will not be faint-hearted, so that we won't lose heart. And remember this, gazing on Jesus is a steadfast contemplation and consideration of who he said he is, as seen in Scripture, all he has done, as seen in Scripture, and as seen in our lives, and all that he will do, again, as seen in Scripture. So, so let's consider another example from Scripture that addresses this concept of looking and living. Matthew. Let's meet over in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Here in Matthew chapter 14, we see a recording of the disciples out in a boat in the middle of a terrible storm. Okay. 
in verse 25 says it's the fourth watch of the night and that Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Which again, boy, to gaze on something like that, you know, you just like gaze and then blink and think, no, no, I didn't get that right. No, no, gaze, look again. No, 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 that's really it. Okay. The disciples were troubled, it says in verse 26. (laughs) But then this is so sweet. Verse 27, you know, Jesus says, be of good cheer. It's me. Right? Do not be afraid. And look at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And then he drowned. No, no, wait, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Jesus did what? Jesus saved him. Jesus saved him. And let's just notice the progression here. Peter saw the Lord, right? All the disciples saw the Lord walking on the water, but Peter saw him. He got out of the boat. His eyes are on the Lord, and he's walking on the water, and all is well. I don't know what Peter was thinking, you know. It's like, wow, this is pretty sweet. I have no idea what he was thinking. But like any one of us, after he was on the water, then he saw the wind and the waves and he got overwhelmed. He got afraid. Fear was residing in his heart. He took his eyes or his gaze off the Lord Jesus Christ. And he started to sink. Can you imagine that? You step out of the boat, you're on this water, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, wow, this is amazing. And then you see the waves, and you start sinking, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. It's like, Lord, save me. And that's what the Lord did. Jesus saved Peter. Don't miss that. Do not miss that. Jesus saved Peter. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who could save Peter, Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us. Acts 4.12 states, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So what does that mean to us? Oftentimes we can view hard things or difficult things in life, right? The storms as the things that pull our gaze away from the Lord. And that is true. Hard times can do that, right? However, even things that we think are good things can pull our gaze away from the Lord. Right? They can serve as distractions as well. Right? Think, think about this. You know, it could be a husband, could be a wife, could be a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It could be a job, a friendship. It could even be ministry scenarios that pull our gaze off the Lord Jesus Christ. So there can be a challenge of even interacting with good things. So no matter what is happening in our lives, you know, whether you think it is good or bad, no matter what, the direction for all of us is the same. Look to him. 
Look to him. Gaze upon Jesus. And just as the Israelites in Numbers 21 were to gaze at the bronze serpent to receive new life, we need to look to the Lord Jesus. Look to him. No matter what. Stare at him no matter the personal awkwardness or the personal sacrifice. Gaze on him no matter the cost. Persistently, consistently think about him and his character. Look to him. Look and and through his death and resurrection find life. Look and live. Years ago, uh, a lady wrote these words, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So as we close here this morning, I just want to give you a moment for personal reflection with the Lord. Okay, so go ahead and close your Bibles, put away your notes. You know. uh, I want to give you just a couple moments here to interact with the Lord about what we have been seeing in his word here this morning. For those of us who know the Lord, I think there's a good challenge in here. Because we can get distracted. We can get distracted by those things both that we think are good and those things that we think are bad. We are told to gaze, to stare intently on who the Lord Jesus is, what he has done, his character. All of these things are seen in Scripture and in our lives. So if you've if you've gotten distracted by things going on around you, I'd encourage you right now, ask the Lord to help you refocus. To fix your gaze on him. And for those of you who are here without the Lord and you're you're thinking, I I don't even know what this gazing thing means. I don't know much about Jesus. It starts with the reality of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior because we have offended the creator God of the universe. And he lovingly and graciously sent his son to die for our sins on a cross. So we are 
We are told to surrender our will. To recognize our sinfulness. To praise him for his provision. To surrender our will to his lordship. So even in that, there is gazing. Lord God, thank you for this rich text this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to take part in the spoken teaching of your word. Indeed, Father, may we not leave here this morning, you know, quickly setting the, aside these thoughts, but in fact, Lord, may we intentionally and intently think about your greatness. Think about your provision for our immeasurable sinfulness, for our unconscionable rebellion. And Lord, may we know well your provision. May we rejoice that those who were once slaves to sin, and that would be each and every one of us, Father, that for those who are surrendered to you, we are now slaves to righteousness. That all of us were the but were some of you. So Father, thank you for washing us, for sanctifying us, for cleansing us. Indeed, Lord, as we leave here, may our gaze be fixed firmly upon you for your greatness and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.